Hi, Bijan here. Today we're doing something a little different. We're heading into the lab. And here we are in the Brain Research Laboratory. This is Dr. Robert J. White in a 2006 documentary called Technocalypse. On this episode, we're talking about a pioneer in neurosurgery. This is a human skull here. That's an area. This is a gorilla. But unlike other leaders in medicine, Dr. White hasn't really been widely celebrated because his area of expertise was a little, shall we say, divisive. See here, when you take the brain out and isolate it, and you keep it alive and live forever. See, it's, it's, uh, I've brought in an expert to unpack the history of Dr. Robert J. White. Writer and historian Brandy Scalace joins us to discuss literal head transplants performed during the Cold War. She wrote the book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, about Dr. White's obsession with putting heads on different bodies and his quest to isolate the human soul. This is a wormhole, our special interview series. Buckle up, it's gonna get weird. We're back with author Brandy Scalace. I'll let her introduce herself. I'm a historian, and I'm also the editor of the BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. And I guess other than that, I kind of exist at the intersections of a lot of different fields, anthropology, sociology, history, medicine, technology, uh, and even literature. So it's it's a good place to be, but it, it's, a, it's, it's a gray space in some ways. I'm very excited to talk to you about Robert J. White. Mm. I, I think it's a, a fascinating story. How did you find out about this guy and what drew you to him? Yes. Well, it's, it's really interesting because I was pursued by this story. Originally, I had gotten in touch with a neurologist who works a lot on brain death and in um, critical care units and things like that. And what happened was um, one day he just called me and he, he asked me if I had ever heard about head transplants. And I said, like, what, Frankenstein? I mean, it doesn't sound like real science. A couple of years later, he called me again and said he had something to show me. So he asked me to come down to his office and he hands me this shoebox, this dilapidated shoebox. And there's something kind of particularly unnerving when a neurologist hands you a shoebox and says, I want to talk about head transplants. But when I opened it, it was a notebook. It was an old uh, research notebook from the 50s. And as I start flipping through it, there's notes, there's cramped writing, there's images, there's photographs. And there's these little rusty flecks. And I asked my colleague, I said, well, what, what's this, what, what's in here? He said, well, it's probably blood from when they did the brain isolation experiments. And I was, I was sort of hooked after that. I feel like if you hand me Frankenstein's notebook, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wanna go with it. Okay, I just wanna jump in here real quick before we get too far in. If it isn't clear already, we're talking about some pretty spooky stuff. So consider this a content warning. If you're not the kind of person who's interested in hearing explicit discussions of what goes on inside of your body, I'd say skip this one. Okay, back to it. Head transplants, a short history. So it, it all started actually with organ transplant. And I, I don't mean to be uh, flippant in any way about this subject, but it, it's it seems like comic strip stuff. And you might wonder why anybody would want to, but you have to understand that during the Cold War, especially early on, and this is the 50s, this isn't that long after the Second World War, 
you know, we weren't sure what was going on behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, people thought maybe they had telekinetic missiles. This is a real thing that was thought and, and investigated. So the idea that they might be able to bring dead things back to life was upsetting. And uh, there was a real sense that if your science won, your ideology won. And so you can kind of understand that there was a real interest in figuring this out. It kind of happened because of a, a film that was released in 1958. And in it is this grainy, it's black and white, and this Russian physiologist marches across the screen a dog that has been surgically altered to have two heads. So it's a larger dog with a smaller dog's head attached at the neck, throat area. And both heads are awake and they're alive and they're panting and the ears move and the eyes follow you and it's a living thing. They both drink milk out of a saucepan. I mean, it, it's really alarming. And Dr. White, he was at the time a medical student and he was at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, which is where the first kidney transplant took place. And he saw this going on and he thought, maybe, maybe we've stopped too soon. Maybe we can do more than one organ at a time. Maybe instead of a kidney transplant, we give you an entire body of organs at once by essentially moving the head. So he ends up at Mayo Clinic and the University of Minnesota. And that's where he starts doing this work on perfusion, on the cooling of, of spinal tissue and trying to save people from paralysis and other, other things of that nature. And he's just fascinated by the brain, the brain itself. And he said he always was. <laughs> he does, as a child, this brain extraction on a frog. And the, he's the only one in the class who manages to do this correctly. And the teacher even then tells him, oh, you, you know, you should, you should think about becoming a brain surgeon. And apparently that never left him. He talked about that story quite a lot in his life about how formative that was. Um, but he had also deeply considered becoming a priest. So this is somebody who has, for whom religion is really core. And I say that because his interest in brain transplant isn't quite as quirky, mad scientist as it sounds. It, it's partly because he believed the brain was the seat of the soul. And when he goes on to do this work, one of the first things he wants to do is isolate the brain. And, and that's a weird concept that I don't think gets enough attention. And so he wants to go someplace where he can be both a surgeon and a scientist. And the only place that allowed him that was here in Cleveland. So he comes to Metro to start the brain research lab if the listeners just close their eyes and think of a brain, right? They'll think of a brain sort of floating in space, maybe a, it's like a big pink walnut. But a brain is largely what we think about as, as us. So you want to take a brain out, but not kill the brain in the mm -hmm. process. You want the, the person, the thing, the substance to still be there. So he essentially wants to create a surgery that allows him to abstract a brain and keep it alive. And he does this with macaque monkeys. And he essentially does it by hooking them up to a, a life support system. And the most complex life support system he could come up with was another monkey. So he has one monkey over here. It's big. It's sitting in a little wooden chair. Uh, the chair, I've seen it. It is inscribed with the words Frank N. Stein. Just to give no. you something. <laughs> yeah. No way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very I mean, small monkey chair called Frankenstein. Lean into it. So he's got that monkey's blood supply funneling over into this other monkey, smaller monkey's body. And then he begins to basically carve the body away. Think of cartoon monkeys if this is very upsetting, because I think it can be very upsetting to people. But you're essentially 
if end up with a head being fed by the blood and and nutrients and etc uh from another larger monkey and then you set about carving away that brain case and having just this naked bulb of brain which is suspended on an apparatus kind of reminded me of like a lava lamp without the glass it's pink and it's bulbous and it's alive and it's hooked up to these EEG monitors and it appears to be thinking like it's it's making the peaks and valleys like you would expect a living thing to be but it is a brain without a body and that was his very first experiment that he did after leaving you know school when he has the brain research lab was this first procedure videotaped like did was is there footage of it there is there is it's upsetting um mm-hmm. to watch and it, it, I, I am not particularly squeamish, but I do love animals. And even though I'm very aware of scientific experiments, scientific researcher, this one was difficult for me. Dr. White, being Catholic, did not think that animals had souls, but he believed that animals had what he called an animating principle, right? Mm-hmm. Some The selfness of the monkey, I guess. And to see that being taken out uh, while still alive and wondering what that would be like. I mean, you're essentially, um, it's alive, but it's sensory deprived. There's no inputs. Right. So you think about human beings in sensory deprivation chambers, that's that's an upsetting place to be. Um, but he takes this research and for him, he he feels that he has proven that the that living principle can exist beyond death. And again, he's very invested in the idea of souls. For human brains, he sees as being the repository of the soul. Mm -hmm. So he takes this information forward and he presents it at meetings and people are very excited about it. They're like, oh, this is great. This is a wonderful model for studying the brain. How does it metabolize on its own, unimpeded by a body? How does it react Mm -hmm. to drugs and stimuli, right? They're very excited about it. But they don't really buy that it's thinking. They don't, they don't believe that it's still in there, that the monkeyness is still there. They don't buy that. Mm-hmm. And that really upsets Dr. White because he, he that's part of the thing he's trying to prove. So he ends up doing a bunch of other strange experiments, taking dogs' brains out in the same way. Um, he even had one dog brain inserted into the neck uh, of another dog. Uh-huh. And that's how he found out that uh, your body will reject other organs, but it won't reject other brains. But still, no one really bought his story. And he thought, how do I prove this? So he goes back to that first 1958 video of the two dogs. Well, he ends up going to Moscow, actually, to try and find the physiologist. And then I went to Moscow trying to find information about this happening. But so he goes there in in search of of Vladimir Demikov, the physiologist, to think, okay, maybe I can replicate this surgery. So he finds this guy. He does. And, and the guy's actually fallen on sort of hard times. He's uh-huh. um, he's fallen of, uh, afoul of the government, uh, which happened to a lot of scientists, right. actually, in the Soviet Union. And he was really struggling. He was basically working without the tech. So he just was making this work by being really, really fast, like the fastest surgeon mm-hmm. <laughs> in the, you know, in the behind the Iron Curtain. And Dr. White technically had all of the, the, the apparatus behind him and the support and the money. And he thought, well... I, Heck, I can I can do this better. Um, the Soviet Union has sent a dog into space. We sent monkeys. The Soviet Union has performed this on dogs. I'm going to do this on on primates. So he comes back, and that's when he decides to perform the first head transplant. You know, I hesitate to say it's not exactly like you you know you put the head on another body. It can't control that body. You've severed the spine, so it's it's just sitting on there being kept alive by it. Really, right? An advanced life support system. Is it? Perhaps uh, more accurate to call it a whole body transplant. 
<laughs> well, so th- there's a trick with that. Um, while working with monkeys, White calls it head transplant. Mm-hmm. When he starts talking about doing it to human beings, he calls it a whole body transplant because now you're replacing the organs for a person and the person stays where the head is. So the idea is that you're importing a body to that head. Yeah, so he's doing a head transplant for the first time. What happens next? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a really complicated surgery, as it turns out. (laughs) Right, I know, shock of shocks. Um, It starts off with, you you have two monkeys now. You have two monkeys side by side. They're both being prepped for surgery. Mm -hmm. They, They basically have to remove the heads while still keeping everything plugged into the circulatory system. So the solution for this is like a telephone, an old-fashioned telephone, right? You've got the receiver and a cord and then the the phone. And so essentially they're separating the body in that way. So they have these monkeys' heads slowly disconnected from their spinal columns, you know, having long tubes and cords to provide the blood supply. And then that creates the room where they can begin unplugging one head supply and plug it into the other head. So you get monkey A and monkey B, and slowly you've got monkey A's head plugged into monkey B's body. Monkey B's head and monkey A's body are then removed. They reattach the head with some bolts, and then they just wait to see if it will wake up. And it does. It takes a while. And these people are exhausted. I mean, there's a whole room full of people who've been monitoring this to make sure nothing goes wrong. They're waiting around, then the eyelids twitch. And then the nose wiggles and it wakes up. It wakes up and it's angry and it's looking around and it tries to bite them. And for Dr. White, that proves this is the same monkey. The monkeys hated him to start with, but he's he's like, this is the same monkey. It's it's still in there. This is a monkey alive and awake and, and experiencing. They fed it. They gave it water. I mean, there was all sorts of things that they did to test this. But remember, its entire body is paralyzed. Right, of course. So it it can move its face, but it can't move anything below that. The vocal box is gone because they've had to sever everything. So some of the people who saw this, you know, his colleagues, were were kind of horrified. So it was both a celebration, but also a somewhat horrific thing to to witness, Mm -hmm. too. And, you know, for him, Dr. White left this surgery and he said to himself and to others, he published about it, have I gotten to a place where we can transplant the soul, is what he he actually said. Mm-hmm. So have I come to a place where this can be scaled up for human beings? And he wasn't thinking of you and me. He was thinking of people whose bodies were failing them. So he was very prolific and very out there and very you know noisy about the work that he was doing because he believed that he was right. He was friends with two popes, which I don't know if I've mentioned that yet. No, I was about to ask, because it, it seems like he's he's on this quasi-religious quest. Yeah. Well, he goes to mass every day after work because he's he's also a surgeon. And I, I, I don't want that to get missed. He's doing all this scientific research, but he's also got his hands in people's brains every day. Trauma, accident victims, gunshot wounds. He's saving people's lives. And at the end of every day, he would go to mass. At, at his his chosen uh, church to kind of get right. But the other thing he often said was that God's hands were his hands, that God was was with him in the operating room. And that's um, on one hand sounds like hubris and on the other hand sounds like humility, depending on how you on how you take it. You know, he he believes so devoutly in what he's doing that he actually seeks the approval of the Pope. But his question was, 
brain activity was life. Brain activity was soul. He wanted that to be accepted by the church. He wanted it to be accepted by everybody. So he goes to the Vatican essentially to, to teach a course to uh, on this, and he ends up talking to Pope Paul VI about it and tries to get Pope Paul VI to kind of agree with him. And instead, the, the Pope sort of says something along the lines of, um, that's above my pay grade, you know, that this is something that doctors have to figure out. I'm not a doctor. And White took that as like a personal mission, like, okay, that we need to figure this out. I need to figure this out. And as a result, his belief in his own abilities, his sense that he was right was pretty unshakable. And I suppose if you're friends with Pope Paul VI and later Pope John Paul II, and they both seem to promote what you're doing, I can see how that maybe your your feelings about that were pretty unshakable. Up next, we enter a very real Twilight Zone. Dr. White gets a volunteer human patient for a head transplant. That's after these ads. So what happens through the end of the 80s and early 90s? So we know about PETA today, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And Dr. White, he's firmly against all of it. He's like, no, they're going to mess up science. He ends up getting their ire uh, quite considerably. There were death threats. There were bomb threats. He was chased by a mob of people in monkey suits who surrounded his car and were like shaking it as he was trying to head to somewhere. Many people wanted to know what was the purpose. Like, why are you even doing these experiments, right? Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union is less and less of a problem. We're we're headed into a time period where they're about to collapse, and there won't be a Soviet Union. I, I guess what's happened is PETA had become quite popular, quite powerful force. So suddenly, there's a very different public consciousness about the value of animals, and it also means that things were changing at funding levels. So when you get to the 80s and 90s, Dr. White. He has a bit of a a brash, you know, big personality that worked fantastically well in the 60s and 70s is starting to look a little, a little bullish, a little like maybe Mm -hmm. it isn't jiving with the public consciousness. So despite these massive changes, he's still publishing and he's still making waves. And he even ends up with a volunteer human patient willing to go through with the surgery in the early 90s. He's approached by a, a patient, by, by someone named Craig Vitovitz, who was a tetraplegic, meaning uh, couldn't move his arms and legs terribly well. He had been in an accident as a young person and damaged his spine. So there were he had some slight shoulder movement, but a lot of things were missing. And that wasn't holding him back at all. He had a very full life. But as is true with many tetraplegic patients, his organs had started to have problems and his kidneys were starting to fail. And he wanted a kidney transplant. And at the time, he wasn't considered a good candidate solely because he was tetraplegic. And for him, he felt like that was incredibly discriminating. Like, you're saying my life's not worth saving. So he approaches Dr. White and is like, all right, you know, if if I've got to go, let's, let's, let's take this experiment. Let's see if we can get me an entire uh, new body to, to put my head on. He'll still be paralyzed, but he already was. So this was a way of extending a life through basically an entire package of organ transplant at one time. Up until that, I think I was still feeling like a lot of, you know, there's no point. There's no point in this surgery. But when you meet someone who says, I'm willing to take the risk because I want to live to see my children get married, 
it feels very different suddenly. And so mm-hmm. I, it gave me a whole new perspective on, on, on White's campaign, really. So what happened with it? It didn't go forward. Now, there's some debate about why that is. Um, you need a couple of things in place to do a human head transplant. One, lots of money. It's very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. Two, you need someone willing to have <laughs> a head body transplant. Three, you have to have a body donor, um, someone Mm -hmm. for whom you are going to take an entire body full of organs. Now, that's complicated by the fact that organs are hard to come by. There's a lot of people on waiting lists. And finally, you need permission. Like someone has to say you can do this. And I sort of assumed that that was a government level thing. As it turns out, not exactly. Experimental surgery is governed by the institutions in which it takes place. And it's governed by what kind of funding and funding bodies, like, is the NIH willing to, you know, support something like that? But there's not like a law against head transplants in the way that I sort of thought there would be. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's an experimental surgery, uh, just as the kidney transplant was. There was no law against kidney transplants either. Um, but there are a lot of ethical problems and hurdles that you have to overcome. So they fell down, essentially. They had the body donor and they had the potential patient but funding became very hard to deal with and permission. So White was given permission by hospitals in the Soviet Union. They were willing, but they didn't have the funds. There were plenty of funds in the United States, but no one was willing to, to dole them out for this purpose. And no one knew if Craig would even survive the surgery. And if he did survive the surgery, whether Craig would still be Craig uh, on the other side. Because, you know, this is all relying on White's supposition that you are your brain, that you're just a brain on legs. But we're not just our brains. We're we're neurons in our stomachs and we're hormones and they, literally the, this is Cartesian dualism problem. This is this is a right. philosophical argument. Yeah, that's yeah. Really, yeah, that's really fascinating. So it didn't happen. It did not happen. And then uh White himself uh he passes away before any of this can can come to fruition in 2010 and Craig Vitovitz actually outlives him slightly. What I think is the most remarkable thing about this story is that head transplants, even human ones, are possible. There's a man named Sergio Canavero, who's Italian, who has picked up Dr. White's research and added to it, extended it, practiced it, done his own cadaver head transplants, done his own primate head transplants in an attempt to do the first human head transplant. And he even also had a willing patient for a while. Willing patient got less willing over time. <sighs> yeah, that's like, so I, what, what did you take away from all of this? You finished the book, you know, the reviews are in and you're, you're like, has, has it changed you? I'm of two minds <laughs> about it. But I, I think that's important. We, mm-hmm. we all have to come to our own conclusions because there's so much we still don't know. I know the brain is complex. I know my brain is complex. I'm actually neuroatypical to start with, so I get it. But I didn't know it was this complex. And I certainly didn't know that my brain could live outside of my own body. And it made me think, would I ever want that to happen? You know, would you want to be somehow preserved um, I, I don't know that I would. I certainly wouldn't want to without sensations. I mean, and even if you agreed to it, like, you don't know what you're agreeing to. Like, you can't mm-hmm. know what's on the other right. side. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. In some ways, it was really interesting. The The patient who had volunteered for the more recent uh, Sergio Canavero attempt, he also has a wasting disease and can't move his lower body. And he, it's going to kill him soon. He'll die young. But um, he backed out of it because he fell in love and got married. 
And he explained in an interview, and I thought this was so poignant, that there's a big difference between knowing you're going to die soon and knowing you're going to die on Tuesday on an operating table. It's not the same thing. And it's still a surgery where the, the greatest possibility is that you won't make it. So, you know, his sense was he felt like he was almost signing up for something that was a guaranteed death instead of an unknown. Dr. White said so, and I think he's probably right. Someone's going to do it. Someone's eventually going to do it, and we'll hear about it, and then we'll find out. And we aren't probably going to know until then what that experience would be like. Special thanks to Brandy Scalache for helping us explore the weird world of Dr. White. Check out her book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, to learn more about his experiments and his fascinating life. If you want to see videos of head transplants, you'll have to find that on your own. No, I will not help you. Next week, we're discussing something messier than head transplants. Divorce. Eclipse is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by word surgeon Michael Canyon-Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Archival research by Caitlin Rathy. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael Canyon-Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Shayer, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. And if you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsedatcampsidemedia.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch, but not Instagram. That's different. Because I, I, you get the joke now, it's a different username. It's at Bijan Cakes. I'm sorry. Follow me there if you want. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>